0: We are continuing uh, in our study uh, as I work through the book of Colossians. Uh, if you're reading in the Pew Bible, it will be on page 924, Colossians 1. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 9 and we'll only make it to verse 14. Uh, it's a tremendously rich and, and dense passage, so uh, we'll be well occupied with its contents there. Uh, if you're not very comfortable working around a Bible. It's going to be towards the end if you see Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, that's the big number. And verse 9, the little number, down to verse 14. Uh, so as you flip there, let's uh, just prepare our hearts for the reading and reception of God's holy and inspired word. Colossians 1, chapter nine, or verse 9. glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Uh, Father, would you come now by your spirit and uh, open our eyes, soften our hearts, and apply your word uh, to us that we might grow in grace, uh, that we might walk in a manner fully pleasing to you. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The greatest goal and the highest aspiration of the Christian life is to glorify God. To put it in the words of the Westminster Catechism, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or to put it in the words of Paul's prayer here in Colossians, it is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This is the highest end and the all-consuming passion of the Christian life. This is the goal unto which all other goals are, are subservient. And in our text, it is the prayer unto which all other prayers are subservient. A life fully pleasing to God. And so the question I want to answer this morning is, how do I get there? And two, what does it look like when I am there? And so the outline for this morning is uh, two points. Number one, the path Of a pleasing life. That's how we get there. And number two, number two, the portrait of a pleasing life. Uh, And in case it's not clear, when I say pleasing life this morning, I'm talking about a life that's pleasing to God, not a life that's just self-pleasing. But we do believe that the fullest experience of joy and uh, peace will be found in. Not doing what is self-pleasing, but doing what you're created to do and glorifying God and serving others. So let's begin with this first point, the path of a pleasing life. And this comes from verse 9 and 10. Paul prays, so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with a knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, these verses are not complicated. You don't need a master's degree to figure out what they're saying, but you do need to slow down enough to ask the question, what is the relationship between being filled with the knowledge of his will over here and walking in a manner worthy of the Lord over here? And if you just slow down and think about it, it's obvious that one is a means to the other. Paul prays for them to be filled with the knowledge of his will, not as an end in and of itself, but so that or so as to for the purpose of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, living a life that's fully pleasing to him. The path of a life fully pleasing to the Lord is the knowledge of his will. And this truth both exalts the significance of knowledge and it limits the significance of knowledge. What do I mean? Well, this exalts the significance of knowledge because it is made essential for living a life pleasing to God. You cannot live a life that is pleasing to God without knowledge and wisdom and spiritual understanding. A biblical Christian cannot say, well, I'm just not really a thinker. I'm just a feeler. I'm not a head person. I'm just a heart person. And this is important because Christianity is not merely an experience. It's not merely feeling God's presence. It's not less than those things, but it's more than those things. True Christian worship must be informed by and governed by the truth if we are to live in a way that is pleasing to him, it must be predicated upon the truth. Jesus told the woman at the well, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That's why you exist. And understand that Historically, there have been large swaths of Christendom that have explicitly articulated the belief that doctrine is irrelevant and all that matters is experiencing God's presence. In the early 1900s, virtually all the mainline denominations became apostate. They deny the deity of Christ, they deny that Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath against sin. They denied that Jesus rose from the dead. They denied all of the foundations of Christianity, but it didn't matter to them. Why? Because they believed that Christianity was not about the truth, but only about experience. And it didn't matter what that experience was predicated upon. As long as you felt God's love, as long as you felt the experience of God's presence, it didn't matter upon what that experience was And even within many evangelical churches today, that might not be their stated position on paper, but it is the governing principle in practice. And friends, this is not only unbiblical, but it can be damning. All sorts of people have spiritual experiences. Pagan witch doctors have spiritual experiences, Muslims have religious experiences. Our subjective feelings and experiences are not reliable guides to what is true and to what is pleasing to God. We have to grapple with the reality that countless people throughout history have devoted their lives to pleasing God, but because their worship is not rooted in the truth, they, do not, they don't offer true worship to the true God, but they all offer false worship to a false God. And perhaps they even call that God Jesus. But that doesn't mean the Jesus of their mind and the Jesus of their worship is the Jesus of truth and reality. And if that sounds kind of nitpicky and harsh to you, just listen to the way Paul expresses this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11.4. He says, "'For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus,' than the one we proclaim to you. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And if you know anything about the church in Corinth, they had lots of experiences, lots of spiritual encounters, and yet they weren't always discriminating between the true Jesus who saves and a false Jesus who doesn't save. And understand that even for the true and maturing Christian, to the degree that our apprehension of the truth is tainted by corruption, so also will our worship be tainted and corrupted. And this is why Paul prays for the Colossians, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, with wisdom and understanding. Why? Because that is the only way that we can walk in a manner fully pleasing to God see then the tremendous significance of knowledge, understanding his will for you and your life. And that's true no matter where you stand today spiritually. It doesn't matter if you're an unbeliever who's never even heard of the Bible or if you're the most godly person in this church. Your most pressing need for this morning is not getting your finances squared. It's not your health. It's not even your marriage or your family, as important as those things might be. Your most pressing need today is that you'd be filled with a knowledge of God and his will for you, because that is the only path upon which you can walk to live a life that is fully pleasing to the Lord. But I also said that verses 9 and 10 limit the significance of knowledge. Well, how so? Well, if knowledge is a means of living a life that's worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to, the, to Him, then knowledge is not the end. There is something more important. There is something more ultimate, and that is worship itself. The goal of growing in knowledge is not to be more knowledgeable. The goal of growing in knowledge is to be more godly. If your knowledge of God and his will is not making you into a person who is more loving and more joyful and patient and kind, gentle, faithful, self-controlled, then all of that knowledge is ultimately vain and worthless. This is just Paul, again, 1 Corinthians 13, expressed with different words. Paul says, if I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So it doesn't matter if you can quote Psalm 23 in Hebrew, if you can wax eloquent about the Christological convictions of the pre-Nicene fathers, who cares if it doesn't actually make you a more gentle, and loving, and kind, faithful, patient person. All that so-called knowledge is ultimately rendered worthless if it's not helping you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Why? Because that's the goal. That's the purpose of our knowledge. And if that's not happening, then it's not the kind of knowledge that Paul is talking about here in Colossians 1, which is evident from these additional qualifiers. It's not just empty head knowledge, but it's spiritual wisdom and understanding. This kind of knowledge brings forth fruit in the life of the knower. It is effectual unto godliness. To give you an example of what I mean, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is encouraging the the church at Corinth to be generous with their money and helping the poor. And so after exhorting them to participate he grounds his exhortation in theological truth. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And so the more that we reckon ourselves a doctrinally rich church with a robust understanding of the the richness of Christ's grace and mercy towards us, what does that mean? It means we should be more generous. If our knowledge of the incarnation that Christ left the comforts of heaven and clothed himself in the weakness of our frailty as as humans so that he could suffer among us, die for us and deliver us from our poverty and condemnation and death, well if that truth doesn't make us more generous then we really haven't understood the incarnation. Regardless of how precise and robust our doctrinal statement is, true knowledge informs us about God's will for our life, for my budget. The incarnation tells me about my budget. It informs me about how I will relate to a critical boss at work. True knowledge informs me about how I will respond after being wronged by my spouse, about God's will for what movies I watch, what music I listen to. And of course, Scripture doesn't address every particular situation that we encounter, which is why we need wisdom and maturity so that we can take the principles of Scripture and apply them to the multitude of situations that we encounter in our lives. Listen to how this is expressed in Romans 12, 1 and 2, very familiar verses to most of us. He writes to them, And says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice again, that the theme, the topic is worship. Living a life pleasing to God. How do we do that, Paul? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect? The ultimate goal is worship and pleasing God, but the means of that is the renewal of our mind so that we can discern what the will of God is in any given situation. So I would ask you are you renewing your mind daily in the truth? What do you listen to when you're commuting to work, when you're doing the dishes? Don't put on garbage. Get an audio Bible. Listen to good preaching and teaching. Listen to good, doctrinally rich music that lifts up your soul in praise and adoration to God. Don't steep your mind in trash. Renew your mind in the truth and do it every day. And I'll restrain myself from unpacking this further so I can get back to Colossians 1. But I hope you see that knowledge is both essential and subordinate in the Christian life. On one hand, it's absolutely essential. You cannot live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, without it. And on the other hand, it is subordinate. It's a means to the end of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And if it doesn't lead to that, then it's ultimately worthless. So verses 9 and 10, we see that a life pleasing to God is walked upon the path of true knowledge. Now, in the rest of verses 10 to 14, we see the portrait of a pleasing life. What does that look like? And you'll see the structure is given by these four participle phrases. Just look for the ing words if you're not a grammar nerd. Uh, So verse 10b, bearing fruit in every good work. Number two, increasing in the knowledge of God. Number three, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And number four, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what does a life pleasing to God look like? We could summarize it most simply, I think, by hand, head, heart, devotion, To God. The whole of who we are, doing good works with our hands, growing in the knowledge of God with our minds, and being strengthened in our hearts for perseverance and patience with joy while we worship God with gratitude. The life that is fully pleasing to God fully engages all of who we are. It's not a kind of legalism that is only concerned about doing. Good works with your hands, nor is it a kind of religious rationalism, which is only concerned with knowing the propositional truths. It's not a kind of spiritual mysticism, which is only concerned about having an emotional experience. The first and greatest commandment is this to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, mind, and strength. And so the first observation I want to make is simply that. The life that pleases God encompasses all of who we are. And now we'll just work through each one of these and and spend a little time considering it. The first one in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. And probably the most helpful thing to do is simply ask yourself as we work through these, does this characterize and describe me? Am I bearing fruit in every good work in my life? And I think we often neglect a biblical emphasis on good works. As a gospel-centered conservative church, we're always fighting a battle with a kind of legalism and works righteousness on one side, so we don't want to say anything that could be possibly be misconstrued as meaning we're saved by our works. But on the other hand, there's this other issue over here, with a more progressive social gospel. And so we want to be equally clear that the gospel is fundamentally about God saving sinners from eternal destruction and not about secondary issues that are important but secondary like poverty, racism, and other kinds of social injustices, which are real and significant. They're just not the primary point of the gospel. And in the process of of fighting these unbiblical extremes, whether it's uh, a legalism on this side or a social gospel on this side, we often inadvertently undermine a legitimate biblical emphasis on good works in the life of a believer. And so while the Bible is abundantly clear that we are not saved by our good works, the Bible is equally clear that we are saved unto good works. Just skim through the book of Titus if you're Not sure about this. I'll give you a few verses here. Titus 3, 3 to 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Clear enough. He didn't save us because of our works. That's the gospel of grace that we love so much. now what does Paul say immediately after articulating the, the gospel? He says, I want you to insist on these things, referring to the gospel, so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. He says in Titus 2.14, that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul tells Titus to show himself to be a model of good works. He says in 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Christians are to be models of good works, ready for good works, devoted to good works, zealous for good works. And this doesn't create any tension with the gospel. It flows out of the gospel. It's what Christ has saved us unto. And so I would ask, is doing good a priority in your life? serving others, helping others in whatever ways that you're able in the church, outside the church. And I can't begin to enumerate all the possible ways because they're infinite. But is this something that characterizes your life? Would someone look at your life and describe you as one who is zealous for good works, just eager, looking for opportunities to do good to other people? And if I'm honest, I don't think those would be the first words that other people would use to describe me. But it's clear here in Colossians 1 that if my life is to be walked in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, then it should be characterized by good works. Okay, Mark 2 in the portrait of a pleasing life. Uh, And I won't spend a lot of time here since it was most of the first point, but Paul says, increasing in the knowledge of God. And it's funny to me that after stressing it in verse 9 and 10, he comes back to it. And despite the risk of circular reasoning, we see that knowledge is both the cause and the effect of a life pleasing to God. It reminds me of a proverb where Solomon says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. The wise person pursues more wisdom. True knowledge makes one godly, and the godly pursues true knowledge. Like I said, I won't linger here, but just observe that knowledge is both the means of a life pleasing to God, and it is one of the marks of a life that is pleasing to God. And so you never get to the point where it's like, I'm I'm there, I've arrived. No, we haven't. We're always seeking to, to grow in our knowledge of an infinite God who's infinite in his glory and grace and all of his beauties. So let's, let's keep going. Third Mark, verse 11, in, in the portrait of a pleasing life. What does it look like? Well, it looks like being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And as I reflected upon this, I, I felt like Paul injected this here after the first two marks to remind us of our dependence upon God. Because maybe after hearing those first two, you're already feeling burdened and you're already feeling the pressure of your need to do more. And maybe your immediate, almost subconscious response is, all right, I just got to do more, more good works. I got to study more. I got to help more. I got to serve more. I just have to be more disciplined, more spiritual, more. I just got to do more if I want to live a life that's pleasing to God. And verse 11 says, okay, slow down. You won't glorify God one bit in your whole Christian life if it's about proving yourself to God, to others, and even to yourself. We should want to be more fruitful in good works. That's a good desire. We should want to be increasing in our knowledge. Those are good things to actively pursue. But the disposition of our hearts our attitude as we pursue them cannot be, well, I'm just going to lift myself up by my bootstraps and get it done. That's not Christianity. And that won't make much of God and his glory. Rather, we say in our hearts, Lord, I don't have the strength to do what you have called me to do. I don't have the endurance to stay faithful. I don't have the patience to bear up under this trial. And I certainly don't have the patience to bear up under it with joy. My resources are utterly exhausted. I can't do this. I need your strength. And as we look to God in dependence, he provides the grace and the strength that we need. And then when we do have success, who actually gets the glory for it? God does, and not just because we know that's the right answer theologically, but because we're genuinely persuaded in our heart of hearts that it was the result of God's grace and strength in our lives, and we get that with justification. When we are saved, we realize that I'm not going to measure up. I need help. I can't do this on my own, and so we look to Christ as our sufficient Savior to, to rescue us from our sin, trusting that what he did is enough. And if you don't get that, you're not a Christian. But we don't get that as quickly with sanctification, the, the living out of our Christian life. After being justified by grace through faith in humble dependence upon God for thing, to do what we knew we couldn't do by ourselves, we then look at every other sphere of our life and implicitly just think, I got this. You know, I can be a loving spouse. I can be a godly parent. I can be a faithful friend. I can be an exemplary employee. I need God to get me into heaven, but I can manage my life on earth. And friends, we can't. And perhaps whether you're a believer or unbeliever, you might be thinking, but you know, I'm managing my life, I have a successful career, I have a happy family, good friends, my life is great. And that might be true in one sense, but I assure you that if you knew the standard to which God actually called you in any of these areas, it would be manifestly evident that you don't measure up and you're far more dependent upon his grace and his strength than you are now aware of. And and just to demonstrate this, I want to read one little passage from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13. Paul just lays out a handful of exhortations. He says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Now, th- stop and thoughtfully consider each and every one of those commands to each and every sphere of your life and all the relationships that you have. Is your love for all- others always genuine? So not only are you doing the loving thing, the right thing, but you're doing it from a heart that flows from, uh, with Genuine delight and concern for the welfare of the other. Do you always abhor what is evil, even just in your own heart? Sexual immorality, pride, selfishness, whatever it might be. Do you always outdo your spouse in showing honor, even after they've wronged you? Do you always wake up in the morning, first thing, zealous for and fervent to serve God, Are you always rejoicing in hope? Are you always patient in tribulation? Are you constant in prayer? And this is just one little part of one passage. And so the question is not really whether your life is just stable and functional, but whether or not you actually measure up to God's standard in each and every sphere of your life. And I can assure you, you don't. It doesn't matter whether or not I know you, I I know that you don't because I know that you were born with a heart that is just as sinful and corrupt as mine. Not only are we not saved by our own strength and by our own works, but we can't do anything that's actually pleasing to God apart from his grace. We are desperately dependent. What good news it is then that we come to the end of our strength and we have a God who delights in giving his strength and his grace in the place of our want and our need. And not only is God delight in giving it, but his strength is according to his glorious might. There is an infinite, an exhaustible storehouse of God's strength available to those who are looking to and trusting in him, whatever the trial might be, whatever the sin struggle might be. And I don't think that means well, things won't feel difficult, that things will never feel overwhelming in life. No, the Lord uses that to teach us continued dependence upon him. But it does mean that as we look to the future and trust that as we humbly depend upon him, his grace will be sufficient. He will give the strength that we need to endure every trial. And it might be exceedingly painful in that moment, relationally, emotionally, or even physically, but as we look to him, he will meet us in the trial with the strength that we need that day. And not only can we be patient and bear up under it. But scripture says we can be patient with joy. But understand, our lives reflect well upon the glory of God and his greatness. Not when we can manage everything on our own. Not when we have all of our spiritual disciplines so well uh, perfected that everyone looks at us and says, wow, what an amazing Christian. But when we realize that we can't manage anything apart from him. And we humbly look to him to provide the grace and the strength that we need every day. And now seeing that we have such a strong and gracious God who delights in giving, what, giving us what we know we couldn't do for ourselves, this should elicit a tremendous heart of thanksgiving and gratitude towards God. And so the fourth and final thing we see in the portrait of a pleasing life is gratitude. What does walking in a manner worthy of God look like? Verse 12, it looks like giving thanks to the Father. Again, is your life characterized by a continual stream of thanksgiving, day by day, minute by minute, mindful of God's goodness and mercy and kindness towards you such that it produces in you thanksgiving towards him. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Niagara Falls, but it's just incredible. 40 million gallons of water, not every day, not every hour, every minute, every minute, 40 million gallons of water. And it just never stops. Moment after moment, day after day, year after year, it just keeps on going. (laughs) And in my mind, I just can't fathom like where it all comes from. Like how does it not eventually just run out? But it doesn't because there's a continual renewal of its supplies. And I would say that's how our thanksgiving should be. An unending stream of thanksgiving because of the unending stream of blessings that we receive from God in Christ. And you might think, well, that's a pretty big analogy. What would justify such lavish and profuse thanksgiving all the time? Well, let's just keep reading. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins the number one reason why your life should be characterized by continual thanksgiving and gratitude to God is because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. If you are a Christian today, understand that when God saved you, he didn't merely forgive your sins. He didn't merely wipe the slate clean. He did those things, praise God, but he did more. He did a lot more more than just wipe the slate clean. Not only were your sins counted to Christ so that you could be forgiven, but when you believe the righteousness of Christ was credited to you. And this is the heart of Christianity, that God does not overlook our sin and guilt. He deals with it according to his righteousness as a just judge. Your sin accounted counted to Christ that justice might be Satisfied, and then Christ's righteousness accounted to you so that you might be qualified. That God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God utterly extends himself towards sinners while, without compromising one iota of his justice and righteousness. And so the beauty of of the gospel is that God qualifies by his grace those who can never qualify by their works. And so brother or sister, if that's you this morning, how ought you to give thanks to God for his grace towards you? How ought you to rejoice at all times in every season? And you might be carrying many burdens in this life, but none so heavy that they can outweigh the the glory of heaven. You might have many sorrows in this life, but none so deep as to extinguish the hope of heaven. But it's not only a future hope that we have, but a present reality. He speaks in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So understand, prior to your conversion, you weren't in some neutral territory. You were captive in the domain of darkness. But it's even worse because Scripture explains you weren't a helpless victim in the domain of darkness, but actually an active rebel against the kingdom of Christ. You were hostile towards God, at enmity with him. You didn't submit to his lordship. You didn't give thanks to him. You didn't live for his glory. You lived for yourself, not even realizing that you'd been, t- you'd been taken captive by Satan, conscripted by Satan in a rebellion against your creator. Ephesians 2 says, verse 1 and following, you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which he once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, uh, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What mercy is it then, that God would send his son into a world of sinners, an active rebellion against him and his kingdom, so that he might save the very ones who have rejected him? What kind of love is it that Christ should willingly die for my insurrection against his rule, so that he might restore me to the very kingdom that I renounced? Well, it's the kind of love that calls for an unending stream of thanksgiving and gratitude that flows with a thousand times the force and volume than Niagara Falls. He is worthy of our thanksgiving. And understand that if that's not you this morning, if you're not a follower of Christ, then that, what I just described, is still you. You are not in a neutral zone in relation to God. You are in the domain of darkness. You are at odds with God. You stand condemned for your sin. But the Bible says there's good news for you. Believe in Christ. Trust in him and all these promises and blessings that I described will be yours in Christ, look away from yourself and your own good works and righteousness. Trust in God who qualifies the unqualified through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of his Son for sinners just like us and just like you. And understand that when the Bible says to Christians, like we've seen today, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, It's not saying, live in such a way that one day, perhaps, maybe, you'll be worthy of God's love. It's saying, God has already, speaking to Christians, God has already qualified you to be an heir. God has already made you a citizen in his kingdom. Therefore, live like it, bearing fruit in good works, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened with his power, and giving thanks to the Father, on account of the wonderful salvation that we have in his son. And perhaps as you reflect upon this today, as you go and throughout the week, ask yourself simply of these four points that I mentioned of the portrait of a pleasing life, which of these do I excel in? Which of these am I weak in? Perhaps you could ask your spouse or a close friend to honestly help you. And then let us as individuals and as a community seek to walk in a manner worthy of our gracious God and King. To live a life that's fully pleasing to Him, that ought to be our greatest ambition and it is our highest calling as His people. Let's pray. God, we marvel at your grace towards us, of what you've done, you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. There is a place at the table with our names, not because of what we have done, but because what Christ has done for us. And Lord, in light of that, we want to live in a way that's fully pleasing to you. Lord, there's nothing else we desire than that we should do that. So help us by your grace to be bearing fruit in every good work, to be increasing in the knowledge of you, to be giving thanks always and continually for your grace towards us and strengthen us by your power to endure and to be patient in trial and hardship in whatever the circumstances might be. Uh, Lord, you're worthy, uh, and we we love to be called by your name. So thank you for your grace in saving us and calling us to yourself. May our praise ascend to you a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.